This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're in Santa Barbara, California for the Goldman Sachs Builders and Innovators Summit, which brings together 100 of the world's most intriguing entrepreneurs to discuss what's big in business today and what will change the world tomorrow. We're joined by David Solomon, co-head of the Goldman Sachs Investment Banking Division, to discuss the current entrepreneurial environment. Later, we'll be joined by two entrepreneurs who are attending this year's conference. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be on the program, Jake. So David, this is the fourth year you've held this conference. Why are we holding this event, and what have you learned this year here? Well, when we, we sat down about five or six years ago, and we really looked at how important the role that entrepreneurialism was playing in the US economy, and we felt we had to get to a place where we were connecting with entrepreneurs that were building businesses earlier than our normal business would connect us. And we decided to curate an event where we bring 100 entrepreneurs that are really doing very interesting things, building very interesting businesses together to spend a couple of days with some more seasoned entrepreneurs, maybe farther along in terms of what they built, sold, developed, to share experiences, connect, network, and that was the idea. And so we started four years ago, and this is now in the fourth year, and I'd say it's been a huge success brings together an incredible group of people that spend time learning, sharing, and I think everybody walks away feeling that it's been a really good use of a couple of days. You know, in the context of that, I'd say people here are pretty upbeat, and they're pretty upbeat because you're with a group of people that are building businesses. These businesses are generally moving forward, they're progressing, and most of the entrepreneurs that are building these businesses have incredible passion about what they're doing, and also an incredible commitment to really building very significant businesses, disrupting, changing, really having an impact on the community that we all live in. So despite everything that's going on in the world, and there's a lot going on in the world, this is a place where people come together in a very, very optimistic way to share, learn, and try to figure out how they can move forward. So we've been in a long period of low interest rates here in the United States, really around the world, and that's helped a lot of early stage companies raise money pretty easily and build their businesses while staying private. So how are the clients now assessing the financing landscape and how are they thinking about building their companies? One of the things that definitely has happened over the course of the last five years is capital has been very available in private form to allow people to fund young companies. Entrepreneurs have had a much easier time attracting capital to grow their businesses. And I'd say that generally speaking, investors have been more willing, and this trend has evolved aggressively in the last couple of years, to provide capital and highly discount the execution risk that exists in most businesses as people move forward. In the context of that, there's been a lot of capital available and that's funded a lot of businesses. And you know, I'd say right now, people generally are not that concerned about access to capital because it really hasn't been an issue for people. Separate from what's going on here at the conference, we've been advising people to take the capital that you need because we think this environment that's been very loose and easy with capital, partially driven by where interest rates are, is not something that's gonna last forever. And there'll be other periods of time where capital for private businesses that are growing, for entrepreneurs that are starting businesses will be more difficult, will be tougher to attract. And so we're encouraging people to take the capital that they need to execute on their business plan while it's very attractive right now. And I think most people are doing that. There's not a lot of discussion here about capital or finance, really a lot of discussion about moving businesses forward, human capital, how do you get the right human capital, what are some of the experiences that people have learned in the context of their businesses as they've made mistakes or as they've had roadblocks or speed bumps. 
but from a capital perspective, people should take capital when they can get it because it's not. It's good we're not talking about it because it means it's not a, a big it's issue. Not a big at the issue moment. right now. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Today we're very lucky to be joined by a couple of the entrepreneurs who are honored at this year's Builders and Innovators Summit. Philip Krim, CEO and co-founder of Casper. We'll talk a little bit about that. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And Mariam Nafizi, CEO and founder of Minted. Thank you. Mariam, tell us a little bit more about Minted. Okay, so Minted is a design marketplace that connects consumers with the world's best artists to make very unique goods. So we crowdsource all of our products. We're in wall art, stationery, and home goods, home decor. All the designs are sourced from an independent community of designers, voted by you onto our site, and then you can come and order from us, and we make the products directly and ship them directly to you. And Casper, which We're, is an awesome name, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, we are hoping to build Casper to kind of be the world's foremost brand around getting a better night of sleep. And we started down that path by designing, engineering a bed that we think provides you the best night of sleep possible. And we'll soon launch other products that will also help improve the quality of your sleep. Thanks for being here. So you heard from David a little bit about the origins of this event. What have you learned? What have you enjoyed about the opportunity to mingle with some fellow entrepreneurs? I think that's it. That's exactly the, the thing that is the most enjoyable, is to be able to take a step back from your day-to-day, -day, which is very intense, and spend a day, day or two talking to people about other people's problems and other, other issues. And, <laughs> reassuring and frankly, to hear about other yeah, problems. It's yeah, it's reassuring, and also to sort of compare how we are solving the same problems around customer acquisition. I had a great uh, conversation about advertising last night and how someone else is tackling advertising. And I've had a couple of very good, actually pretty deep conversations about how to solve some specific problems. And we're in an environment where we can relax and talk about it, which has been, I think that's one of the biggest benefits. Philip, how about you? Yeah, I definitely echo those sentiments. And then also add that, as David mentioned earlier, the speakers who are a few steps ahead of us as far as uh, execution and the problems they deal with. So it's great to hear their perspective on it and how they tackled problems that we might be facing down the road. So. It's great to deal with the problems that we have today with our peer set, but also see what's ahead of us with some of the entrepreneurs that Goldman's arranged for the event. So let's talk a little bit about the thinking behind your companies. Uh, Philip, Casper sells mattresses. Yes. But it's not just any mattress, and it's not just any sales process. The mattress industry has not been dynamic over the years, so what are you doing to try to change that? Yeah, certainly a very state industry. And right now we're focused on mattresses, but really we see Casper as kind of being one of the world's foremost brands around all things sleep. And we see sleep as having a lot of cultural momentum behind it because people are realizing that investing in that part of overall healthy life and well-being is important. And so we really focused on creating a single mattress that was universally comfortable. We felt that the traditional retail environment was rigged against the consumer. It was an experience that no one enjoyed. And so we set out to not only change the experience, but really to invent one of the world's most comfortable mattresses at any price. And so myself and my co-founder set out to build this universally comfortable mattress, which has been well-received and sell it and get people involved with it in a way that had never been done before within the category. And so what's the thinking around why the time is ripe for disruption in this industry? It's a great question. I think we just saw that it was one of the last consumer categories that had not been impacted by the internet. The majority of mattresses are still sold in traditional specialty retail environments and consumers generally hate that environment. It's one where they have to deal with a commission salesperson who's highly trained to get you to spend a lot more money than you have to but mattresses are one of the most impactful products in your life. It's something you're spending a third of your life on your mattress. It impacts how you do during the day, how you feel, how you perform at work. 
so we just saw that there was a big disconnect in what the opportunity was with consumers. It's actually interesting when you put it in the context of you spend a third of your day on a mattress, you would think that people would actually spend more on their mattress and less on certain other things that they sit on or sit in or spend time on. But it's not really the way it works. No, it's not. And, and it's actually, consumers are, are confused often that you, know, you have to spend more money to get a great night of sleep, and that's not true either. Mary minted different kind of company, builds on the creativity of an entire community of designers. How did you go about building the community behind Minted, and how does crowdsourcing model make Minted unique? We crowdsource everything we sell, meaning that our idea was how do you create a brand that lasts forever by taking the merchandising decisions out from the hands of a few and bringing it to the crowd. So anyone around the world can enter the competitions that we hold, design competitions in art, in stationery, in home decor goods, and then the voting analytics are what we use to pick the products that we sell. We completely use analytics. We try to take bias out of the system, actually, to create better design. So ironically, it's technology and math can help you make better design. You know, in a sense, we're completely fresh all the time. That's the big differentiator for us. So we are the first to get the trend of the fashion ahead of everyone else. And we've repeatedly done it now in a couple of different categories with success. We just launched Home Goods, which means we're making, believe it or not, pillows, curtains, lampshades on demand. Oh, so now. you're competitors. <laughs> no mattresses. Absolutely never going to make a mattress. Throw pillows. Yes, we can accessorize the mattresses, but uh, it's all about the design that's, you know, that's printed on things. So we built a community by really first approaching people in the stationery business, to be totally honest. Then the customer marketing that we were doing actually began to attract designers in. It's a bit of a virtuous cycle where many things have now combined to create a very strong community. So inside your company, you're obviously looking for talent, as everyone is. There's a notorious war for talent in the uh, industry today. What are you looking for, and how have you been thinking about the hires that you make for your company itself, not just the, the folks that are helping supply Minted? Yeah, it's very different from when we first started uh, to now we're nine-figure business in terms of revenue, and we are in multiple verticals. So we're running a multi-vertical company which needs general management skills for each one of those verticals. So we're constantly now looking for people that we're training up to become general managers. But you know, when we were back at 20 people, it was quite different. Now we talk about two things, building people within. So both of the GMs we've just put in charge of art and stationery are both built from within. And then outside, we hire people into disciplines that we are not experts at. So if it's, for example, finance, we hired a VP of finance from outside. And HR, we hired a chief people officer from a public company. She's seen everything. That's where we blend a portfolio of experts from the outside into disciplines where we're not differentiated. And if we are differentiated, it's part of our core competency, we try to build from inside. Like, well, we won't hire a merchandiser from outside the company because we're all about breaking down traditional merchandising. So it doesn't make sense for us to necessarily hire somebody with 20 years of merchandising experience and then tell them, forget everything you've learned. We're doing it using voting and analytics. So as you've gotten bigger, how do you maintain a startup mentality and try to maintain the creativity that started off the company? Is that hard? And how have you tried to tackle that challenge? It's really hard. And I've gotten new insight into why bigger companies tend to slow down in innovation, because I can see the things that start to creep into culture, process, hierarchy, just things slowing down. We're trying to keep certain teams very, very lean. For example, the brand management team uh, is very, very lean at the company, and it sits together in a sort of a circle fashion. We sort of sit together in a pod 
in a, a bullpen, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. Everyone is hearing whatever is going on. It's a very open office format. So you're not getting segmented by markets and by Yeah, we're, we're trying to, physicalities help, how you seat people, no offices, lean teams in certain areas. There's all sorts of things we're trying to experiment with. I'll tell you in a couple of years whether I well, solved you the solved it or not. Yeah. Philip, how about you? You are still reasonably small. What are you looking for in terms of people? How do you attract people? How do you keep them? And how do you keep that sort of startup mentality that is behind the whole company? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're uh, we're just shy of 18 months old and right at about 100 people. And so we've had to grow our headcount remarkably fast. And it's interesting to see people that we hired even a few months ago that were tasked to do a certain position and now have to become managers within the organization and now have several people under them. And so it's interesting to think about how we should allow them or train them to be a manager and to empower them to do that. And as Miriam said, it's a balance of kind of bringing in outside help when we need it and then promoting within so that people move up within the organization, especially the people that were critical to our success in the early days. But it's definitely something we think about a lot, and I think every company goes through different phases of the kind of people that you're looking for and what you're optimizing for in your search for talent. And it's definitely tough out there. And you have to move quick and kind of stay nimble so that the organization can be responsive as you learn about new challenges for the business. One thing I wanted to just mention is I was an analyst at Goldman, and probably the single biggest thing I took away from the whole experience was recruiting and how everybody at Goldman was given the job of being. It wasn't an HR it's job. A ha- it's, it's, it's a hands-on experience. It's everyone's, it's everyone's job. job. Yeah, right? it's everyone's right. job. And the recruiting process was just amazing, like how consistent it was and how well it found the best people. And that's something I've actually taken with me. Yeah, David, talk about that. That's time-consuming. It is time-consuming. But hugely valuable. Hugely valuable. And in our business, which is a human capital business, it's what you've got. In other words, at the end yeah, of the day, we don't have any cool products. Our product are these people that we hire that we recruit. We've got people in capital. The capital is a commodity. All the value add is the human capital. And so you know, recruiting becomes the lifeblood of what you do. Now, in a business where you're actually putting forward a product in some way, shape, or form, There are differences, but still, fundamentally, for any business, you have to have really, really good people. You've got to have a culture that attracts them, retains them, and it's not an easy thing to do. And I do think what Miriam's highlighted is this ownership of or responsibility that everybody feels to bring great people into your organization as you need them. That's a really solid cultural foundation to have as a part of any organization, whether a small entrepreneurial business or a big, you know, more mature behemoth. institution. Behemoth, yeah. I wouldn't use the word behemoth, but a big <laughs> institution. <laughs> so, Phil, you had uh, previous experience as an entrepreneur. What did you learn from that experience? Is today's environment different for entrepreneurs? And how have you taken what you learned in the past and applied it to this new business? I think there's never been a better time to start a business. There's never been a better time to raise private capital. So we're based in New York City, and I've been there about eight or nine years. And for the first time, you really see like startups and technology and emerging companies kind of become the darling, potentially more than finance, in a city that was always dominated by that. And so it's awesome from an employer hiring standpoint because you're getting the best and brightest out of school, and people are willing to leave really exciting jobs to join someone that's really creating something from the ground up. So I, I think it's an awesome time to be looking for talent, to build a company, and also to have a network of companies that Goldman's brought together here, but just in kind of your backyard that are dealing with the same challenges or scaling their business. And there's a lot of people you can rely on and a network you can rely on to help you solve challenges that I don't think existed before. So, Miriam, how about your previous experience? What is different about this company, and what do you learn that you're applying and minted? 
Well, the first one I started was Eve.com in 1998, and that was very much a land grab. We raised $26 million in 18 months. We hired 120 people in six months, and we tried to just get out and get mindshare around being the cosmetics destination as fast as possible. And there were four, I think, venture-backed startups that launched right after us. I did it with a co-founder. I hired really fast, raised a lot of money. This one... Um, By the way, Miriam was 14 when she started that. She's on her second second. <laughs> so that was the height of the boom. The height of the boom. At the height of the boom, you needed to move fast. Move, and, yeah, and we had to move really fast. If you weren't moving fast, you were dead. Exactly. And it was because a lot of it was you could be the first in an industry. We were actually the first cosmetics you know, company online. We eventually sold it right before the market tanked. Well, that's um, the thing that's, that's so impressive when I've heard your story before is the fact that you actually had the foresight to sell that business at that point in time because anybody else that was on a consumer-driven platform that thought they had a lot of momentum or could create real value basically did not. And the fact that you were able to sell the business when you did was really an incredible accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah, we sold it uh, about a week before the NASDAQ took its first plunge for cash, an all-cash you know, all deal. Yeah. So it was a good outcome, but it was very much pick-and-pack e-commerce. You put everything in a warehouse, you pick-and-pack it. It wasn't that unusual of a business model in retrospect. It was a Web 1.0. This time around, things are more subtle. It's a lot more competitive. There are great people out there that you're competing with. Access to information is a lot more transparent, so you know exactly what to do because you can read everything online. So what that's done is it's brought a lot of the absolute best talented people to the table in entrepreneurship. It's not just about the people who had the access to the information at business school. It's now just everybody. So it's gotten more intellectually challenging, in some ways more satisfying. Yeah, so how do you think about differentiating yourself in that environment? I think the fundamentals are still about trying to create long-term, competitive, sustainable advantage and layer that on layer after layer. You get one layer and then you try to add another layer on and another. You almost have to take it as, I build this one anchor and then I take that anchor to build another anchor and then another one and another one so that you've got so much competitive advantage that mm -hmm. even if one part of it gets attacked, you've got all of it. So I do think it is a lot more challenging. You are dealing with hiring millennials who are very much into authenticity and transparency. And so trying to change your mindset as a hirer and as a CEO to make sure that you're able to attract the best people by conforming really to a different culture than one that was existing 15 years ago, I think is also another important thing. It's really in the end about the talent, the people, who you can attract to the company, and then maybe your base strategy, building that strategic advantage. So how about at Casper, part of the strategy seems to be taking on an industry that hasn't changed as much and isn't maybe as sexy as some others, but if you bring some of that same engineering talent, uh, but, I'll, but I'll let you uh, speak for yourself. How have you thought about differentiating yourself in this environment? I think just as Miriam said, we talk about how there's no silver bullet to set yourself apart and that it is incremental improvements. And oftentimes it's kind of embracing the more complex or difficult ones and making sure that you solve those because there's a lot of competitors, there's the established guys that are looking at what we're doing and how they can compete, there are new guys that have followed in our footsteps. And so for us, we often talk about what are the, the more complex challenges that we can embrace to try to take on and see if we could solve those and attempt to build kind of an incrementally more differentiated and defensible business. And it, it's tough, I mean, everything moves really quick. There's a ton of transparency out there. So as soon as you launch something or do something different, people see it and people are trying to reverse engineer it. So it's something where you have to continually do that. And I think building the organization, you have to do so in a way that people embrace that challenge where it does feel like you're constantly chasing doing something better. And, and for us, it's always saying, what else can we do to make the customer experience or customer journey that much better or differentiated? And it's differentiated from our competitors, certainly, but even beyond our industry. When you're experiencing a new brand, how do you experience it and what can we do to just continually surprise and delight our customers? 
Because if we do that, then I think there is real defensibility in the brand that we're building, the experience that we're delivering, and products that back that up. So here at the conference, you've talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs. What kinds of challenges are they all facing, and, and what have you picked up that makes you feel a little better that it's not just your problem? It's interesting given the people that are here, but it all sounds like growing pains, and those manifest in a number of ways. For those people that are dealing with physical product, there's managing the supply chain. is always an issue as you're scaling quickly. I think certainly hiring is the common thread you hear from everyone about how you manage that and how you think about all the complexities that go into that and how you deal with formalizing those as your organization matures. And there's several different inflection points for companies as they grow. But here it's you know, all private companies that are growing rapidly and dealing with how do they make their companies more mature from an internal standpoint. And Mary? Yeah, I think the human resources is the class that everybody wishes they could go back and take more of once they end up in the job. <laughs> like, oh, Didn't I sound that good in business I school, I should, but yeah, now... I yeah. you know, maybe paid a little bit more attention to HR class because it really, a lot of the angst and a lot of what people talk about is how should I design this org structure or this organizational structure or what type of people have been working for you? How's it going transitioning that new VP of XYZ into the organization? Are you still doing this, or are you, have you delegated that? A lot of the conversations or questions that others have asked me or I've been asking other people have been around responsibility of the CEO, your changing role as you scale the org structure. It's funny, like management and leadership. In our earliest days, those are things that we never talked about in culture as well. It was all about the product and execution. You didn't have that many people to lead. Exactly, right? and, so. and the culture was what the culture was because everyone sat in the same room, and we all knew it, and you didn't have to define it, and we all hired together, so it was easy to make sure that that was kind of manifested through those processes. But now that you're bigger, you have to think about management and leadership. And those were things that I find we talk about a lot more than obviously we ever did before. And it's interesting to hear those as disciplines and how people have dealt with that as they've scaled their organizations. It's very consistent what they've both said with what I've heard. I mean, in particular, hiring and human capital and kind of managing people. Those have been the things that I think have been pretty consistent in my conversations. So we've got both coasts represented here, New York and the Bay Area. What's the best place to start a company today, and why have you chosen to run your business where you run it? I'm very pro-New York, <laughs> being based in New York, but we are actually opening a San Francisco office, and I think there's stark differences between the two markets, and they have very different feels from an entrepreneurial perspective, but I think they both have their strengths and weaknesses, and we're excited to have a bigger part in the San Francisco community, and we're building our product development team out there, and there's some really great talent out there. But New York is also a great commerce hub, great advertising hub, and there's a lot of great companies that have come up in New York that have great talent now that can help us accelerate our growth. Miriam, how did you think about that choice? Well, or was it a choice? It wasn't a choice for me, but I do have New York envy sometimes because I run a business that's very much about brand and marketing and retailing, and when I go to New York, people really understand our business. We can talk to retailers and media people, and they all understand the business super well. It's actually more of a fit with the industries in New York than it is actually in Silicon Valley, where we often get the blank stare. Yeah. So I actually really enjoy working in New York, and I think San Francisco has actually gotten a lot harder because every venture-backed company has moved to the city. You know, 15, 20 years ago, people were in Palo Alto, in Sunnyvale, Mountain View. Now it's Every, Everybody has migrated north of the airport, and it's made the real estate and the hiring situation incredibly difficult. It's absolutely insane. It's almost unaffordable to start a company in the city now, in San Francisco. Many people are going to Oakland, for example, opening Oakland offices. We have an Oakland office now. Uber just opened an Oakland office, I believe. Oakland's the new Brooklyn. That's East Bay. Yeah, yeah. that's the Brooklyn. That's the yeah. part of Brooklyn. Getting there quickly. But yeah. it's interesting the way this has all evolved, and there is such an entrepreneurial hub in San Francisco. 
There's a lot going on in New York for sure, but if I were to look out five or 10 years from now, the importance of entrepreneurialism in the US economy and kind of the advantage we have because culturally we have that here, huge advantage for us, I think it's gonna continue. There'll be ebb and flow based on capital availability, but I think it's really something that's here in the US. It stays, it's a competitive advantage, might evolve elsewhere in the world. But there is no practical reason that San Francisco or New York actually need to be a hub to develop businesses and attract really terrific people. And you know, this started in San Francisco because you were originally talking about businesses where the whole value add equation in the business was really about having software engineers and coding. I mean, it actually goes back, if you want to go all the way back to the 1940s and Hewlett Packard, but generally it spoke to a certain kind of human capital. And it's obviously evolved way, way beyond that. It's just human capital generally. And human capital and starting a business has cost associated with it. And it's much, much more attractive to have it spread around the country in places where the amount of capital that you need to fund a business to pay your people to make it all work is more affordable. And so I'm a short on this kind of trend that it's all about California or New York is going to be the next one. Really expensive urban centers are really attractive. And I think people want to work in really big urban centers. But at the same point, it's just not practical for all these businesses to be located in these places that are massively expensive. And my guess is in the next five to 10 years, we'll see change. Yeah, and it was really interesting to hear Dan Gilbert earlier talk about the revival of Detroit. And I think, you know, to your point, when there are leaders that say, we're gonna go, we're gonna make this a hub, it does attract talent, it does yeah. attract capital. And you're seeing that in more and more cities. And obviously there's a ton of appeal to startups like going to Vegas or Detroit or wherever where the cost to operate is so much lower. And it's great to see whether it's companies or people step up and say, we're gonna put the emphasis behind that and be a leader to bring everything to the table. Yeah, so you have been entrepreneurs for a long time, even though you're both very young. What advice would you give to the next generation, the people who are just getting out of school now and are thinking about trying to build their own business? Do, should they start right away or should they come work at Minted or Casper and learn the, the tools of the trade? What's the career path for the young, budding entrepreneur? And how, how important was your initial experience when you weren't an entrepreneur and shaping mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. entrepreneurial experience? So how important was it to you that you worked at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years? I mean, I think setting the work ethic bar and sort of what does great work look like, it's nice to be around really great, great, great people. I was there from 91 through 93, and I worked with a lot of really great people. And that definitely set the bar for what quality looked like, which I think is important to be able to understand that. And going to business school, actually, also, even though I was reluctant as an entrepreneur to go to business school, I thought, well, great entrepreneurs don't, don't go to business school, so why am I doing this? But I did meet some really phenomenal people there and was able to network to then be able to raise capital for the first business. So I think being able to see some pattern fitting to understand what a business will look like when it's a little bit bigger. Like having a couple of years of that was helpful. But I don't think that you need to necessarily work at a, a Minted or a Casper to do a business. In fact, I think starting a little younger before you start to put it off for too long, if you really are entrepreneurial, is, is likely the better, potentially the better path. When you're younger and you have less to lose, you don't have a reputation to lose, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have children to support, et cetera, it just becomes a little easier to take risk. Yeah. And then if that first risk does pay off, you're in a great position for the second one or the third one. But what if it doesn't? So one of the things that's interesting, mm -hmm. we're talking to two people here that have had success in going out, but if you statistically laid it out, yeah. you know, 99 out of 100 don't. True. And so what about the person who is more able as a young person because they have no responsibilities to take that risk, but they go down the road for five to seven years and it fails? 
are they in a better place starting sooner, or would they be better if they had a base of experience and then tried? Mm. Would that give them something to fall back on? It's a great question, and anyone that's done this for any length of time knows there's ups and downs, and that's part of what you worry about is what happens if you, know, you can't get out of it or a capital cycle doesn't turn or whatever it may be. Part of it is what organizations you're tied to, what have you learned on the journey, and then how do you translate that into whatever you want your next gig to be. And so for me, I, you know, I had the perspective where I started my first company when I was in school at Texas, never really worked for someone and just learned on the job. And then I think about like if I didn't end up at Casper, it would be hard to kind of hire me. I was always a generalist because I always started my own company. You always had to wear a lot of hats. But that makes oftentimes a difficult hire. I think it just depends on why your first path didn't work out. What did you learn and would that be valuable? How do you translate that into your next? And oftentimes a lot of people, they want to be founders. That's all they want to do. Then start early because you'll learn early. And, and to Miriam's point, you have less time. You have time, time to, to fail a couple times. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you do have time to fail. It's, I mean, it's, it's very, very interesting. You used an expression that, that I think is really important in the context of this. There are people that really want to be founders, which means that if they fail at something or succeed and sell, they will go find something else. They'll go be a founder in something else because mm -hmm. they're wired that way. I mean, they're truly wired to start businesses and go through that experience. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's going on today that's interesting because of the visibility that all this entrepreneurialism is getting is there are a lot of people that are heading in that direction right out of school that actually don't have that personality or aren't wired that way to really deal with the failure and then go say, we'll do it again. And so... You know, I think if, if you are wired that way, it makes sense probably to start right away as soon as you can and have a couple of failures or have the time. But there's a little bit of herd mentality right now where people are going to be a founder and start something just because as opposed to the fact that they're really wired that way to be successful in that kind of environment. Yeah, and I, I think in those situations, I think it's very important that you talk to people who have been through ups and downs in the cycles because it's very easy to see oh, I'll start a company, it'll be a unicorn company that's worth a billion dollars, and, and if you're graduating or just graduated recently, you've only seen good times. And I think it's very important then to kind of balance that perspective by talking to people who have been around through ups and downs, whether it's your personal journey ups and downs or the overall market ups and downs, and understand that the good times will end. That's kind of the only inevitability that you can bet on. And then, you know, are you prepared for that? Are you going to be in a position where if you need to get a job, you can get a job. If you're going to start something else, you have a plan there. And not to say that you need to get ahead of yourself, but you just need to, I think, uh, make sure you have the perspective of there are ups and downs, and you need to be able to manage both. And I think that's certainly something that we try to teach to our employees as well, is that uh, you know don't take this for granted. You know We've been doing well, we're young, but we're certainly going to face our challenges. And when we do, we need to be ready for those. Uh, and I think that's both personally, professionally, and as an uh, individual and company, you have to be prepared for that. And just also ask yourself if you're willing to let go of what anybody thinks about you. Because if you're willing to get to that, because it's a lonely process sometimes, and it's really rough. Sure, yeah. And you have to have a lot of internal strength to just keep, keep making it through sometimes. And so you need to basically be willing to completely not care at all what other people think about you. So that's one question to ask yourself to see if you're really ready. That's a great point. That's a great way to close it out. Thank you very much for joining. Um, that concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward, and thank you very much for listening. This podcast was recorded on October 15, 2015. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. 
neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.